Now we don't want to focus on the human rights water if that centers the state, um, which we know states are often violence, often perpetuate inequities, and you know, especially when you're talking about settler colonial states and so forth, that that's a key concern for people. But I still am interested in most of the empirical studies that I've been involved with, and here I'm referring to work that my students have done in Argentina, in uh, some communities, some of the work with First Nations, and especially some of the work we've done in South Africa. There is a strong sense that this is the government's responsibility, nonetheless. Welcome to Co-Water Voice. We voice critical views and marginalize aspirations within the water development sector. Co-Water is a postdoctoral research program funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program, Marie Skodowska Curie Action. Co-Water examines conflicts over water resources and water territories and seeks to understand the conditions of possibility for turning conflicts into civil society co-production. I am Pratimi Vidyatmi Putri, the University of Kassel in Witzenhausen. In the second season of Co-Water Voice, in this beautiful summer 2022, I invite you to understand conflicts over water resources and water ecosystems in a critical manner. Not all forms of water stress and calamities, like water shortage, or low quality of supply will lead to social conflicts. At the other end, conflicts cannot be simplified as results of mismanagement. In this season, I have conversations with wonderful scholars who have been researching about water, environment and society to highlight some important concepts and approaches to help me in understanding conflicts. Leila Harris is with us on this episode. She is a professor at the Institute for Resources, Environment and Sustainability and the Institute for Gender, Race, Sexuality and Social Justice at the University of British Columbia. Her scholarly works have contributed greatly to our understanding of water and environmental governance. In her work, she invites us to critically question the market-led notion of access to water and other resources, the modern notion of state-citizenship relation, as well as social-cultural identity and governance, among other crucial research topics. Today, we have an interesting conversation about equity in counterbalancing efficiency, about the pluriverse of water systems, as well as the spatial and scalar dimensions of water conflict.
Efficiency has been a major policy focus in public water management. And this policy focus has been manifested in privatization strategies in the global north since in the 1980s and in the south more or less a decade later. Efficiency in its definition and operation is strongly influenced by the capitalist market logic and we have witnessed the negative impacts of water privatization. We can make a long list of negative impacts of water privatization, especially impacts on poor communities, cannot avoid the cost of commodity of water, or they don't even meet the eligibility conditions to access pipe water. I would like to discuss with you today about the concept that you and your colleagues have thoroughly discussed in several journal articles, that is the concept of equity, that I see very much to counterbalance the approach to efficiency. To begin with, would you please explain some basic propositions attached to this concept of equity? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so there's so many things we could say in terms of why equity should matter for these debates around uh, water service provision or access and so forth. Um, so I think at the most basic level, the way I think about equity is often just in terms of how um, vulnerable or marginalized communities are going to be affected by a particular policy or intervention or pricing scheme or tariff scheme or whatever the proposal is. So in the context of your question, you talked about privatization. So how will that affect um, the people who are maybe least likely to be able to afford a water connection or you know, living on the margins in other ways as well? So I always want to foreground and ask the questions around how will this affect certain communities? Again, whether it's in terms of relative impoverishment and affordability questions, or just in terms of uh, other forms of marginality. So if it's you know questions around race or ethnicity or caste, it might not just be questions of income, poverty and affordability, but it might just be how people are um, disenfranchised from the governance of the system or from being able to access water in a particular way. So just returning to your question, I think the key thing that I would ask is whenever um, efficiency is used as an argument for a particular type of water governance regime or access strategy or provision um, modality, I would also just always say, you know, that equity is not the only, and efficiency is not the only goal. And what does equity bring to the the table when we, we talk about the suitability of this approach. Um, one of my former PhD students, uh, Dr. Philomar Torio, worked on the very famous Manila privatization scheme in Metro Manila in the Philippines. And basically his whole thesis looks at the ways in which those schemes are analyzed and um, adds an equity lens to that analysis. And so what he's able to show is though a lot of the indicators that are typically used to evaluate privatization schemes look favorable in the case of Metro Manila in terms of, you know, improved access to service, longer time period when water is available during the 24 hour day, etc. When you add an equity lens, it shows a lot of the weaknesses of the current approach. So, you know, the way those other indicators track whether or not privatization is working, they're only looking at the areas that do have a piped connection to see if customers are getting better service, so better pressure in their system or you know more hours in the day of service, but they're not considering at all the communities that are still outside of the pipe network as one key example. 
So by adding an equity lens, you have to immediately start asking about, you know, those communities that are not on the pipe network and how they're able or not to receive water. Um, you know, does the private company have an incentive or imperative to deliver water to those communities? And I think, you know, even though it's argued, some people even go as far as to argue is that efficiency will improve equity because they say if we can deliver water more cheaply or more ably, we're going to extend that water more easily to underserved communities. But the evidence is not there that that happens. As, as universalizing access to water and sanitation has been translated into forms of homogenized and homogenizing products, for example, pipe water and bottled water as an example, development in the water sector has ignored diversity of societal knowledge and practices that are embedded within a wide array of social biophysical processes and their interlinkages. You have studied various water systems attached to diverse cultures and socioeconomic systems. You have made research, for example, about the farming communities in the river basin in Turkey, urban communities in Cape Town and Accra and the First Nations in Canada. In what ways you see that the equity norm would be able to guide water justice across diversity or perhaps looking at it from a different angle, it seems that each community has own conception about equity. And you and your colleagues call this, this as a group-specific political constructs of fairness. I think there is a tension, as you're identifying, um, between something like norms around equity, which assume that we have universal ideas of fairness or equity, or even the human right to water, which seems to be this universal idea that everybody should have basic needs. But as you've also indicated, what basic needs means or what fairness means or what are culturally appropriate um, forms of water quality and you know, mode of access could be quite variable. Um, so I think the key and here is just to always include the communities and the people who are most affected in those conversations about what is appropriate and reasonable in terms of you know, water affordability, equity, and so forth. And that that has to drive the intervention or the way that we understand and frame the issues. So speaking with First Nations in Canada, one has very different understanding of the importance of access to safe and affordable water than one does in the context such as underserved communities in, in Accra, where we've also worked. Um, and we have seen really important differences in these different contexts. And part of the reason I like to do multi-sided work is just to allow those differences to become more apparent um, so that I'm not just taking one context and assuming that that's how it looks everywhere. I'm always interested to find out how do poor communities in Accra, or how are they similar and different in how they're framing water questions and water struggles to communities in former townships in Cape Town, for instance. Um, when we know there's so much specificity in terms of political, economic, culture, and policy context and cultural context. Um, but that said, I also see some things that are quite, I won't call them universal, but shared across these really diverse contexts. And one is just the way that people often do attach these broader social and political meanings to water. So the struggles and conflicts around water, I can say quite simply, are never just about water itself. Like water is often the touch point or a central locus of um, political engagement or concern 
but it always sort of stands in for wider concerns of the community. So in First Nations in Canada, yes, communities are concerned that they don't have safe and affordable access to water, but really the ideas of fairness and equity are almost stronger um, than the water questions per se. I won't say stronger because it's not a relative thing, but they're very important. And so those fairness and equity questions extend into broader issues around colonialism and settler colonialism and the histories of treatment of those communities. We can see similar things in Flint, Michigan. I myself have not done fieldwork in Flint, Michigan, but I've, I've read a lot of work from my colleagues. And there again, yes, it's about water. It's about the fact that primarily African-American residents of Flint don't have safe access to water in the community, but it also really touches with broader concerns of how communities are being treated in a policy and regulatory and social context in the United States. It connects to Black Lives Matter and carcerality and all the different issues that are affecting those communities. So there it's about, you know, do we matter? How do our lives matter? Um, how do our knowledges matter? And are these taken seriously when we bring them to the attention of government entities. And so there you can see how the issue around water hits on all of these broader social and political concerns, which is a theme I've seen strongly in the First Nations water context as well, and also especially in the South African water context. So communities in South Africa who are focused on sanitation and water struggles, those are the touch point visible issues, but it's always intersecting with broader issues of inequities tied to apartheid era policies and you know those legacies and those continuations of segregated landscapes and it's always about knowledges which communities get to participate in governance and it always hits on those sort of multiple levels um, so that's that's one of the things that i am in most interested in is a sort of universal question across contexts which is how equity um, comes to really be an important part of the discussions around water, you know, apart from something we could measure in terms of does everybody just have equal access, but it's more the narratives about equity and the politics about equity that really get foregrounded when we look at questions of water and sanitation. I've been recently thinking about the global water justice movement that has been centering their strategies or struggles around the right to water. I think similar to the problematization on equity, to me, the term right, like fairness also, imply a particular model of state-society relations. I wonder if in your research experiences you have encountered with also other local terms or, or ways of imagination referring to this essence of right obligation relations. What I experienced uh, in my research and also dealing with post-colonial South, that the modern state <laughs> imagination is also often imposed um, from um, the modeling how it is in in the in the north, of course, uh, including the concept of welfare and uh, state citizens relations. Perhaps you you could reflect on this <laughs> together with us. It's a really interesting question because I think there's from the conceptual literature, um, theoretical conversations about the human right to water. That's one of the key concerns that we don't want to focus on the human rights water if that centers the state, um, which we know states are often violence, often perpetuate inequities, and, you know, especially when we're talking about settler colonial states and so forth, that that's a key concern for people. But I'm still interested in most of the empirical studies that I've been involved with, and here I'm referring to work that my students have done in Argentina, 
in uh, some communities, some of the work with First Nations, and especially some of the work we've done in South Africa. There is a strong sense that this is the government's responsibility, nonetheless, and that people, um, the rights claims that are made are basically around state responsibility to provide these services. And so that, that's often rooted, I think, in a particular historical and policy context. Um, so South Africa is perhaps the best example where because the constitution for the new South Africa says very plainly that people should have access to basic services, including water and sanitation and so forth, that that's a strong part of the political discourse from the water justice communities and also just from residents living in these settlements, that this is something that they deserve and that you know is a right um, for them in the context. So it's the way in which the policy context sort of infuses the day-to-day political language. And, you know, it's quite interesting. Um, and I think also in Canada, you know, there's the idea that this is government's responsibility because in Canada for First Nation reserves, it would be the federal government that should be working to provide some of these services. So it is a, a fairly strong part of the political discourse as well here. So in Ghana, as a point of contrast, we haven't seen that same focus on state responsibility. Um, there's a bit more of a normalized sense that this can be a vendor-provided service and that people should pay for water because it's a service that people are providing to them and those people deserve a livelihood. As well, so I would say that there's a less state-centric discourse when you talk to everyday residents about their water challenges and um, what is required. That said, I still feel like there is an undertone about decency of all citizens, and not just in terms of people who have formal political rights, but let's say all residents, that everybody deserves a sort of um, minimum sort of standards and decent decency in terms of development challenges. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, I think, is also shared in there. The idea is probably that the state has a responsibility to make sure that people who are less well-off are, are cared for or looked after, that there's some social safety nets in these ways. So I, I also, I guess the answer to your question is I understand and I'm empathetic with the broader critique around the sort of particular norms around state society relations or the sort of state model that's imposed from the Westphalian state system and that it's not necessarily something that should be imposed, um, especially you know, through colonial mm-hmm. modalities. But that said, I have found that in most of the communities where I have done um, face-to-face interviews and tried to understand the contextual dimensions of the discourse, there is a fairly strong sense of... Um, state requirements to deliver those services for residents. And so I'm, I'm always sort of interested, as you are, in what that looks like and why and how that comes up historically. Like, what are the ways in which those expectations come to be uh, normalized? The thing that I'll mention that has come up for, in our work in South Africa, the Cape Town work, um, and also in First Nations water governance, and also in Flint, as I said, I haven't worked there, but just noticing some similarities, but also in the work on sanitation in Argentina that Margaret Morales led from our group. The key issue that people foreground, again, going back to equity, is people notice in the same state context the inequality around services. So that's what people focus on. So when Margaret spoke to people, 
in those communities around Goma status, around their sanitation, they would often refer to people in other parts of the city who had, um, you know, different types of sanitation services and had flush toilets and so forth. So it's those comparisons that people make in terms of how certain people are able to live and how it's different where they're saying that the state is failing. And the, the movie, the film that Margaret worked with, the community, the film, they sort of titled it, I believe the title that they chose for the film was sort of The Absence of the State. Mm-hmm. And she was surprised by that because she didn't know how central the sort of state discourse and expectation was, but it was strong in that context as well. And in South Africa, when people talk about their communities and the services that they're living with, they are making direct comparisons to nearby white suburbs that, you know, are very geographically proximate, but worlds away in terms of the level of services that people enjoy. The same, I would say, with reserves in Canada. So people often talk about a two-tiered system here in Canada. Mm-hmm. People enjoy better access to services. So that's where I think the state becomes really uh, central, mm-hmm. is when people are trying to challenge and understand the sort of uh, differential two-tiered citizenship or second-class citizens or however that feels to them mm-hmm. when they know that they're not enjoying the same uh, services as others in their community and trying to, to challenge on what basis, you know, are people not sharing similar benefits and services in, in a certain contexts. In my work, I try to look into the future in the sense that we, we, if we discuss further about this absence of state, mm-hmm. I mean, if you believe that these standards of basic needs, including water and sanitation, have to be there, and when there's part of the state, because, yeah, I think uh, state institutions also not homogenous, no? I mean, uh, the way it is operating in everyday life, it has uh, different layers of apparatus, different layers of levels. We can talk also about scale of governance, etc. Mm-hmm. But then if we think about the absence of this uh, formal state as, as we revert it as this uh, formal provision from, from the government, then there has... There has been room or gaps that is there, and it has to be filled with other kind of institutions, could be religious um, institutions or other kinds of community or civil society organizations. And then, yeah, I have been questioning also about the very basic democratic atmosphere to allow this kind of organizations to grow, to learn, uh, at the moment, uh, in what way we can progress in water and sanitation. I always think that it, they are not uh, rocket sciences. We know the technologies should work. But then when in this authoritarian context, this kind of organization are keep um, being eliminated or not allowed to, to grow the way they should. I, I think you're kind of hitting on a key question, which again is a question that I've been interested in, but I'm also still really searching for answers. I don't have answers is you know how do we take seriously the coming together of some sort of top-down or centralized you know government classic state services versus enabling and supporting those more bottom-up community level institutions and norms which are critical to actually maintain services and make sure that people um, who are most marginalized are likely to get access so, you know, there's some work that I've been involved with that looks at water sharing just as a key example of the more bottom-up 
so in what context, whether it's religious norms, community norms, do people share water? And how can we better understand that as a key mechanisms that communities might engage with, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, or especially in times of water scarcity or water crisis or post-disaster? Maybe those sharing mechanisms become really central, um, you know, in terms of community resilience, if you want to call them that, uh, to enable uh, communities to overcome those strategies. In other contexts, it might be an everyday thing where people who can't afford water are able to rely on social networks or neighbors or uh, a community source or religious uh, provision or other things. So I think there is always this interplay between, you know, what we might see as more formal governance, formal government institutions, you know, um, hard infrastructure, you know, in terms of the cement pathways and pipe network, and then the more actual way people get water, which is the more social networks, you know, community norms, and maybe the extensions of those formal pipe services. So in different contexts, as you said, it looks quite different. And I think there's a lot to be learned there. So place where I've worked with this is most important perhaps is in Ghana and that's because in Accra only half of the community is served by the pipe network so you have fully half of the population which is getting their water in some other way so we've tried to just understand what are those diverse pathways by which people access water and what are the implications of that diversity you know, in terms of not assuming that the pipe water network is necessarily the gold standard, or we know it's not the way that people access their water. So how can we trace and understand all those multiple modalities and understand that? So uh, some of my students have done work on this in Accra. I'm thinking specifically of Megan Peloso and Cynthia Morinville have done a lot of work. And they wrote a paper together that looks at sort of this flexible um, modalities of access and they kind of highlight that it's yes maybe we want to be working towards a pipe network because that's one way to ensure quality and affordability but the actual way that people are accessing water using these diverse multiple modalities on a daily basis has some benefits for people's daily lives so for instance something as simple as not having to deal with a monthly water bill and being able to pay on a daily basis for what you can afford. I mean, we actually know that on the whole, when you pay on a daily basis using vendors, you end up paying more per unit than if people had the benefit of a pipe service. But, you know, those sort of strict ideas around monthly billing and all these other things often don't work for people's realities and, and live situations. So those are the sorts of tensions and issues they highlight in terms of understanding the multiple um, modes in a more robust way, you know, not just seeing them as a bad or something that should be eliminated, but how can we incorporate some of that flexibility and diversity into our goals for extending access, especially for impoverished communities. And I think there are some lessons there because there are things that do work better for people. And if we're aiming to move towards a pathway that ensures quality and affordability, you know, um, how can we do so in a way maybe that enriches some of these community traditions um, that exist? I'll give another example from Ghana just to flesh this out a little bit. As I said, we know that people in Accra are accessing water through diverse ways, including water vendors, tanker trucks, um, and also lots of reliance on storage. So people will store water for weeks at a time. And so when I spoke with the people who are involved with the 
PERC, which is the regulatory commission that works on water and other services, setting the price, but also trying to maintain standards in terms of quality in the sector. They basically only deal with the pipe network. You know, they're not attempting to deal with vendors and they're not attempting to give community members guidance on best practices for water storage, even though there would certainly be things that they could do and maybe should do to ensure quality um, of the water and that people don't get sick, you know, if they're doing storage practices in certain ways. So to me, that's an example of do you accept the reality? You know, they're only focusing on pipe network because that's where the only place they feel comfortable and that they have purview and are able to do something. But the reality is many people are getting water in many different ways. So should they be recognizing that reality and, and trying to engage with it, even though they can't have full control? In Canada, we see a similar thing where I was sort of surprised to learn that for a lot of people um, don't get piped water because they're on the, they're off network. And so in that context, the individual homeowner, let's say, is fully responsible for maintaining their water source, treating their water themselves. So again, I asked the health authority, you know, do you provide guidance on what modes of treatment are most effective? You know, what is more suitable in a particular context? And, you know, again, they don't try to engage with it. They say that's the responsibility of the homeowner. But I still am always perplexed that they're not aiming to provide resources or general guidance or starting points or anything um, that will kind of give people stronger guidance. And we know in the local context here in BC, where I've done a little bit of work, um, we know that half of the community was not um, treating their water at all. You know, and so that's the reality. And then you have the sort of health authority that sort of prefers to pretend that that reality doesn't exist. And they just say, well, they're responsible. <laughs> but if you know that half the people are doing nothing, you know, could there be some back and forth or attempt to support um, that element of the actual informal water access in some way? I think it's a, it's a hard question, but it's an important one. Yeah, it's really great that you enhance on this sharing water, I mean, among communities. So this is like trying to really look at the collective actions that have been there in the community. Maybe to close this conversation, I'd like to ask you about how much we should push a private sector. Yeah, what I mean private sector is if we imagine cities of uh, the global south with a polarization between middle class settlements and shopping malls and different kind of uh, more commercial functions, and then the informal settlements you can also think spatially about, about uh, this kind of, yeah, I don't know if I, I would call it subsidy, uh, not necessarily the subsidy as we know it in the formation of water pricing. Because we also imagine a more decentralized model of not just uh, pipe water uh, networks, but, you know, kind of looking at it also in a loop from sanitation to clean water. And we have rainwater harvesting or uh, recycling water. And this kind of approach have been, have not been there at least in, not in Jakarta so there's no uh, rainwater harvesting there's no uh, efforts to recycle water so then I'm thinking that well there are private properties shopping malls that could be try to at least make a decentralized model that is also responsible to the nearby <laughs> from a settlements I, I always imagine that maybe South Africa have, have been more advanced in this kind of regulating one thing that's obvious, and this is not my specialty, so I, I don't have specific examples to speak to, 
but one thing that might be obvious is even if you don't regulate um, private sector on these dimensions, which I guess you, you can also consider, that are there incentives we can place to allow people who are working to serve through the pipe network or creating a shopping mall, as you said, to consider that broader context in which they're working. So let's say consider the nearby informal settlement in their plans and not only think about the geography of the shopping mall where they're working. So in the Canadian context, I know we have a lot of um, incentives for developers where they get credits, you know, if they're doing something that relates to bird friendly design or water, water friendly design and so forth. And so more ecological components. So I think part of what I hear in your question is could we add more sort of equity and or water and sanitation equity goals in particular. So that let's say if a shopping mall is going in, Maybe they're going to do a decentralized treatment system in that mall to reuse uh, and process and treat water that's being used there, which then could maybe be provided to nearby communities. So to understand themselves more as part of the fabric of the city or of the peri-urban area, wherever they are operating, you know, and not just be looking, how is the function of the shopping mall meeting our environmental standards, but how does it relate to broader social and environmental goals, including interactions with the wider city? Um, and I'm just thinking of that example. I'm sure there are other examples that are more directly regulatory. So how you set up, for instance, the contract with a private water provider. I think you could put stipulations in there that relate to equity or achievement of the SDGs around water and sanitation. But even in the, our campus at University of British Columbia, buildings, new buildings that are built are meant to meet certain ecological standards and they can get credits for different things that they choose. So if they want to do bird friendly design or be dealing with wastewater issues in the community, you know, then those are credits that those developers can get um, that go towards their zoning and other things that they're meant to achieve. But there's often little on the social side. Um, so we can integrate more social and ecological goals, sometimes working with private sector developers maybe to provide the right incentives for how they should interact with communities. Because the norm, as you know, especially working in a place like Jakarta, is often that those informal settlements are bulldozed to make way for the new shopping mall. But like how do they sort of work in ways that are more embedded with broader social and ecological goals, I think would be in an important reframing. Um, and again, that's not my direct area. So that would be closer to you as someone who's worked more in planning. Very happy that you mentioned about this campus, universities. And we should not just think about shopping malls, but there's also this, even the governmental buildings or those functions that are not considered commercial, but it's actually public services. We thank Leila Harris for having been with us. 